Before we start, a warning. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic violence, which some listeners may find distressing. Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. In today's episode of the Truth Hurts series, we will be talking about how providing services to survivors of domestic violence can go wrong, even if they're well-meant and designed with the best intentions. My guest today is James Henderson. James, as a social worker, you ran the Domestic Violence and Stalking Unit for Probation in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And for the past 10 years, you've been a trainer around gender-based violence, and you've worked a lot on improving the system's response to this form of violence. As part of your activities, you're also working with men who've used coercive control to prevent them from offending again as soon as they leave prison. Thanks for joining us, James. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm honored. James, let's start with a question that I ask all guests of the Truth Hurts series. What brought you to the issue of fighting violence against women? Can you tell us about your personal journey? It really probably started long ago. So my mother married very young um, when she had me, and her first marriage didn't last. Her second marriage, unfortunately, she married a man who for the first five years, he wasn't a batterer. He was a very controlling man. Once she became pregnant with his child, all of that changed. For some reason, something clicked in him where he felt far more entitled to use violence against my mother. Now he was stepping out on a relationship and cheating and doing things that he hadn't done prior to her pregnancy. So I think for some reason, he felt now she was captured. So we grew up in this home under a lot of fear um, with yelling and screaming and things being broken and my mother often getting hit or assaulted. The police were called numerous times. Um, in those days, it wasn't illegal really to hit your wife. I mean, you could have been charged as an assault if the victim really went after it maybe, but for the most part, police just told him to take a walk around the block, told my mom to calm down, never talked to his children. The abuse was really pretty horrific. I mean, uh, to where she got her leg broken in the Kmart parking lot. And again, the police just drove us home. And the next day when my aunt took her to the hospital, he had fractured her leg. Finally, you know, I'm now in fifth grade. I'm nine years old. I think I'm a man. And uh, he's assaulting my mother. And I get in the middle of it, which we know many kids do, right? They try to protect their mothers. And I get in there with the same veracity and the same type of vocabulary that he used against our family. But he wasn't going to tolerate that. And he hit me in the middle of the back, which collapsed me to the ground. I lost all of my breath. I was petrified. I'd never had the wind knocked out of me before. And he repeatedly kicked me after I fell to the ground. My mother freaks out. She starts screaming, worried that he could have caused internal damage to me, that I could have kidney problems, I could have a broken rib. So she takes me to the hospital, calls the police, and forces her way through him to get me medical treatment. It was the first time that I existed to the system. Like every other time, we were invisible. The police never asked a question. No one talked to us. Now, all of a sudden, two big police officers with guns come talk to me in a hospital room. They're pretty friendly. They asked me what happened. What did Andy do? What did I do? What did my mom do? I remember at one time they said, you're a good kid. Usually kids from homes like yours 
And that was like a double-handed compliment, right? They're telling me I'm a good kid, but they're also letting me know that I'm one of those people, right? I'm from across the streets. Mm -hmm. I still liked them. They seemed like they were on my side. They said I would get to go home and I was happy. The next thing I know, a social worker comes in and talks to me. She was pretty engaging, pretty friendly, and she asked me a variety of questions. And at the end, she also said that my mother did nothing wrong, assured me that I did nothing wrong, and said they were only concerned about my safety and welfare and that I should be able to go home in a little bit. Like at 8 o'clock at night was when this assault happened. It's now 10 o'clock by the time the social worker leaves. So now let's speed it up to one o'clock in the morning. I'm still in this room because I had to get x-rays and I had to wait for the doctor to look at the x-rays. And I just want to be with my mother, right? And I asked the nurse, can I please talk to my mom? Can my mom come in here and sit with me? And they're like, oh no, honey, she's just outside. It'll be a little while. And maybe 10 minutes later, a gray haired old man came in and he says, hey, you're going home with me. Nice to meet you. And I'm like, I'm not going home with you. You're nuts. And the nurse is like, no, honey, you got to go home with this guy. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. And I'm like, I need to talk to my mom right now. And they're like, oh, honey, she went home hours ago. I tell you, if I could have sworn back then the things I would have said to that person, I just remember thinking like, how dare you? Like you just told me she's sitting out in the front lobby. And so now I have this absolute terror and I'm furious. And so I'm like, I want to talk to my mom. I want to they're like, that's not going to happen. So I'm like, okay, fine. Let me talk to the police officers. They said I get to go home. And they're like, well, they're not here anymore. I go, I don't care. Call them, right? When you call the police, they come. And they go, they're probably home with their families. And I'm like, that's what I want to do with mine. And they're like, no, that's not going to happen. And I'm like, then I want to talk to that social worker lady. She said I got to go home. I did nothing wrong. And at this time, I'm literally starting to panic. And I don't think I'm hyperventilating, but I'm probably as close to hyperventilating as a young man could be. And you're only 10 years old, well, right? I'm 10 years old. I'm in fifth grade. And I'm crying. And I'm like, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Like, why am I being ripped away from my family? And they wouldn't let me talk to her either. She's the one who called us. So at that moment, I remember thinking, it was really my awakening that this system is not to be trusted, right? Police lie to you. Social workers lie to you. The medical profession's in cahoots with them. Nobody is to be trusted. And I'm this powerless, scared little kid who wants nothing more than to protect his mother, who's worried about his mother, who's being ripped away from his mother's home because they said he's in too much danger. They also said that I was in so much danger. I had to go to a different school in a different community and I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't talk to any family members, any friends. I was totally in hiding. And I'm two and a half years older than my one sister and I'm nine years older than my other. My other sister literally was just four months old and they ripped them away from my mother as well, thinking they were in danger. Mind you, Andy truly, in my opinion, isn't a child abuser. His real target was my mother. Andy's your stepfather, yeah, right? Stepfather. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So his his target was always my mother. It was gender-based violence. I got assaulted because I interrupted that violence, right? So you could say there's abuse because we're exposed to this and there's the trauma that comes in the home, but he never targeted us kids. He targeted my mother. It was all about control and dominance over her. But they ripped my sisters away from the home and put them in a different community in a different foster care. And it's a lovely home. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this foster care home. But uh, the next day I go to school and what does everybody want to know? 
right they all want to know your story where are you from why'd you move here what's going on and i'm this scared kid that has no idea what what do i say i was kidnapped by the state i have no idea when how long i'm going to be here i have no idea what's going on no one can be trusted it's just you're literally stuck here with all of this shame knowing that you're one of the people from across the street you know or across the tracks however you want to say it and have no one that you can talk to so I end up seeing a social worker that had been a social worker back at our own school. And I want to talk to her and she didn't have time to see me. And I just literally fell apart. Like I have no one. My mom was told that she couldn't have visits with us until they got approved. She had to do some parenting classes and had to get qualified to have supervised visitation first. When mind you, my mother she doesn't even use physical discipline. She's a timeout mother. She's a you know, born again Christian, goes to church three to four times a week, never drank alcohol, doesn't do drugs. There was never a question that she neglected us, that she abused us. When I was harmed, she did immediate intervention at her own risk, right? Yet she had to earn the right to see us again. Finally, we get to go home and I'm behind now because we studied different things for six weeks, right? So after six weeks, you return to your own family. We got to go, finally get to go home after six weeks. Mm -hmm. So you're a little bit behind school. They have me assessed and the violence is still going on. And he's still coming over terrorizing my mother. He doesn't live there anymore. He's moved out and has a new mistress that he lives with who's pregnant. So we're kind of happy he's out of the home, but the violence did not stop in any way, shape or form. He came over regularly. And they have me assessed by a psychiatrist and diagnosed me with ADHD. They now put me on medication. The violence happens again. We get ripped out of the home a second time. Again, all kids put in different schools. I fall further behind in school. Again, think about when I get to go home again, I got to go home again, like two months later. Again, return to my mother. And again, everybody wants to know where you've been. What's your story? What do I even tell my friends when I come back? Do I say I keep getting stolen from my mom because Andy keeps beating her up and the police won't do anything? So I have to get in the middle of it. And now I'm so far behind in school, they decide to put me in a special ed class just for two hours. And this time of school, you get a different hour for every class. So you have like science, you have math, and you go to a different teacher. Well, I was behind in reading and math. So I could go to my regular science class. I could go to social studies, all those. I could be with my regular classmates, but they wanted me to get help with my reading and spelling and help with my math. And they put me in a special ed class. I was so terrified of being seen as a slow kid and all the things that people said that I would sneak into that class late. I would wait until all of my classmates went into class and then I would go into school. So now they get mad at me. They have me see a social worker again. They diagnose me with a uh, defiant disorder and want me to go to counseling on Tuesday nights. Tuesday night used to be the day that I uh, played baseball. And now all my friends want to know, where are you at, Jimmy? Why are you not here? And again, what do I say? Do I say I'm a screwed up kid who has to go see a social worker? And I remember being so, so angry at this system. So they have my mom doing parenting classes. They have me on ADHD medication. They have me seeing a counselor. They have me in special ed. And all these things were done by really well-meaning people with well-meaning policies. And everything made me feel more like a failure. And it was my fault. And Andy used that against us. He would tell my mom, you are a worthless parent. You're horrible. 
look at what they do to you. They've taken your kids away from you. How many parenting classes have you had to go to? How much counseling do you need? You're sick. You're a sick woman. Your kids are nuts. Look at your mentally retarded kid has to go to special ed. He has to be on drugs because he's so mentally ill. All these things, I'm feeling more at fault, more blamed by the system, more disempowered, more shame in my own community. I can't tell my friends. I can't tell my relatives. And if we know anything about ACEs, the absolute importance of having these protective factors around us, they're all being shredded and destroyed by this system that's meant to help me. Mm-hmm. And they're driving my mom further into depression. They're driving me into depression. The last time we went to foster care, they told my mom, if you let that man hit those kids again, you're not getting them back. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother didn't know how to stop it. And this caused a lot of problems, a lot of therapy. She said, if you would keep your mouth shut, you wouldn't get hit because she didn't know how to keep me out of it. In the end, my mom tried to commit suicide because she had no way out. There was no help for her. And so uh, more shame on our family. So this is a long story to say how I got to where I come at this. But I think what I learned through that is that well-meaning people with well-meaning policies, do devastating things to families and their children. And then they blame us. They blame us because we don't call the police and ask for help. They blame us because we don't show up to court. But every time we tried to ask for help, your intervention put us more in danger and emboldened the perpetrator. I remember one of the last times he beat my mother, her being curled up in a ball on the floor next to a kitchen cabinet, him pounding her head off this oak cabinet, holding a phone in his hand, yelling, do you want me to call the police? And me and my sister screaming at the top of our lungs, crying, no, don't call the police, don't call the police. Because we knew he would beat her up for 10 minutes and it would be over, right? He would be out, he'd bring her candy tomorrow, and it would be peaceful for a while. If we called the police, we would never see her again. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's so horrific beyond belief. Do you remember when you shaped that thought that you wanted to do something about it and go and study social work yourself? We were really lucky. Andy disappeared, got a job out of state. And I ended up going and having a lot of problems, not doing well in school. I'm having difficulty, but I always knew I wanted to go to school. So I ended up getting into social work, never planning to work with domestic violence. I really was working with substance abuse. My biological father died from drunk driving when I was a young kid. And I thought if he hadn't died, our life may have been different. So I become a social worker, really learn about systems work, don't have a lot of respect for child protection at that time, and no desire really to work in it. But um, as I started working in addiction, so many of the people that were there had the same type of childhoods that I had. A lot of the women in addictions had history of rape, physical abuse. Um, The men had histories of child abuse. And I ended up doing a placement in my master's degree at the probation department in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I was uh, a social worker for them. And the judge knew that I had a lot of interest in domestic violence. Every time there was a training, I would go to it. So she had asked my supervisor, to request that I be lead that domestic violence stalking unit. I denied that job a couple times, and then the judges pulled me in and wanted to know why I wouldn't take this promotion. And it was the first time I ever told anyone my personal story. And I, I really loved the judge I worked for. She was amazing. And uh, I go, please don't make me do this job. And I go, um, you will destroy my soul. And she goes, how can you even say that? We're trying to help people. And then I said, you know, the system did nothing for my mom. 
I cannot work for a system that's going to harm victims and children. I can't. And so to her credit, she listened to me and she says, Jim, if you can bring me one policy, one procedure we do that causes that type of outcome, I will promise you that we will not implement that project. We will change that. Anything outside of breaking the law. So I said I would take the job only if they got me the same training that every single victim advocate got from the shelter, that I needed to know every service that was available to survivors and their children of domestic violence, how to access those resources. And I want to know who was doing that and how it was being interpreted by the people they were serving. I also wanted to get training outside of the state because quite frankly, we didn't have good training here. And Michigan usually wanted us to spend our money in Michigan. And I said, we're going to have to spend our money elsewhere, right? I'm going to have to fly to California to get the training that I need. That's a really important point from a policy perspective, because there's a tendency to just remain with the budget and this is what you're going to do and not necessarily what's best for you, right? Yeah. And you, you needed to think beyond what we were doing because we were doing the best that we knew how in Michigan. My biggest asset to the probation department was I had a slightly different lens than a lot of officers. We don't think about the collateral consequences to the victim, to the children, and to the community. And so every action and inaction constantly sends a message to the person causing harm, to the person who he's harming, and to the witnesses in that home, right? Who am I blaming for the violence? Who do I think is responsible by the violence? The other thing I think is we, unfortunately, as policymakers, we do things to people with good intentions, not with people. Let me explain that to you. So I was a problem kid and they said Jim could benefit from seeing a counselor. That's probably true. But what they did to me is they said, Jim, you're going to have to go to counseling on Tuesday night and see this therapist. She's for your own good. To me, that is, Jim, you have a problem. You're bad. We need to fix you. Go here on Tuesday night. Tuesday night was the day I played baseball, remember. All of my friends were wondering where I am, right? And I'm being ripped away from them. What would have happened if they would have came to me instead and said, you know what, Jim? We're kind of concerned. We see you're having some problems with school. We know things have been tough with your stepdad. We have a woman who's an expert in working with kids in tough situations. And we think it'd be great for you to have someone you could talk to. Mm -hmm. And then they would have said, all right, she can see you Tuesday at three o'clock. And I would have said, oh, Tuesday's when I play baseball. If they would have stopped and said, you know what, Jim? Baseball is important for kids. You need to have your friends and interact with that. I think that's really good. Let us see if we can find a different time. That would have been trauma-informed care. That would have been doing stuff with me and partnership instead of doing stuff to me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I would have felt I had some agency. Another interesting example that happened here in Michigan, we have um, a well-meaning judge. So we have orders of protection. So a victim can go into a family court and say, hey, this person's a danger to me. I want a stay away order, you know, and a court can grant that. Well, then that victim can also go in and drop that later on if I don't feel I'm in danger anymore. So judges sometimes don't want to drop it. And they say, hey, we want you to create a program that these women have to go through in order to drop it. They just want them to have a safety plan. They want them to understand domestic violence. I said, but you're still forcing a victim to do something. And so next time she needs an order of protection, she may not ask for it because if she needs to get it lifted, she knows there's going to be all these sanctions imposed on her. 
and it takes her time. It takes her energy. It takes her money. She has to do, jump through all these hoops. If he's the one that we're afraid of, what would happen is if instead when she came in and asked for it to be lifted, we said, if Mr. Johnson does this class and comes back to the court and tells us what he's put in place to give us some assurances that his family will be safe and that he's taking account for his actions, we will strongly consider lifting it. We offer the same type of services for the partners free of charge that you could go to, but not make it a requirement for her. Yes. Make it a free option, but make it a requirement for him because you know what's happening? Batterers coerce their victims into dropping the charges. We coerce our victims to go back into court and change their mind. James, why do you think that is? I mean, is it because people think that it's useless to work with a perpetrator and that's why they concentrate on the victim? Because what you're saying seems like so much common sense that you wonder why the initial focus is not more on, as you say, the person who's doing the harm. So it's easy to blame the victim. Victims are less resistant to us. They're easier to push around, right? A batterer gives me pushback. I tell him to go through treatment. I tell him to do this. He fights me. He's difficult to work with. And of courts want a speedy exposition, right? So I tell you to jump through a hoop. You're more likely to do it. You're the one coming here saying you want this lifted. And I am worried about your safety, right? I mean, as a court, I don't want you in danger. What are my options? Well, I'm more likely to get you to go do something than I am him. So A, it's, it's a path of least resistance, I think, for courts. And I think too often we've just catered to men, to be honest with you. Um, we don't want to inconvenience them. They're supposed to be out there being the breadwinners. We're going to interfere with that. We have to really break down those barriers to getting services. If I only have an agency that's open nine to five, and that's where my victim works or my offender works, that's not very trauma-informed. That's not very engaging for the client. So we have to work different hours to accommodate family. So, Jim, now you're on the other side, right? right. You're working on domestic violence, and you're trying to change the system based on your experience. How difficult is that? What are the practical issues that you encounter when you're trying to change the system from within? I think a lot of people really do have good intentions. So once we sit down and discuss kind of the collateral damages, when people see they do that, they feel horrific. I told you a story that's 50 years old. I told that story two years ago, Florida, in front of a bunch of child protection workers and school principals and teachers, and the principals started crying saying, we do that to kids right now. So we needed to um, figure out how are we, uh, you know, to raise consciousness. Here's how we're impacting. This is how we're training victims and children to not participate. Our policies and probation were created 20 years before domestic violence was a crime. Not a single policy or procedure measured it against victim safety. So for us to go back through every single policy and say, how does this policy make families safer? If it doesn't, let's throw that away. I got training on how to do victim interviews with victim services. I had victim services come watch me do the pre-sentence investigation with the offender. Am I sending him a message of who I think is responsible for that? Am I victim blaming? Am I pressuring her? Am I um, justifying or minimizing his abuse? And so you have to open your door and be transparent and say, come watch me. Tell me if I'm doing something wrong and teach me so I can do better. And uh, once we did that in Ann Arbor, it was amazing. The changes our shelter started doing, our batter's intervention started doing. Our substance abuse agency used to work against us because we got 
stuck on the word powerlessness, right? So in AA, I am powerless over drugs, alcohol. You know, they say I'm powerless over people, places, and things. So that's some common sayings you will hear in the AA community. In domestic violence, it's all about power and control. We have power. So because of that slight language difference, we had one of the largest substance abuse provider in our county telling the judge not to send one of their clients to the domestic violence intervention program, that it would actually lead to his relapse and death because of their concept on powerlessness. And the judge wasn't going to send that guy to the batter's intervention program. And this guy absolutely, out of all the men I worked with, had so much entitlement and privilege and authority that he needed to go to that program. So just let's back up on that one. That is a very, very interesting point you're making because it's about terminology, about concepts, and about how different institutions, organizations, and NGOs have different cultures. So can you just explain that again in a little bit more detail, um, how yeah. the two concepts differed? So you had the one concept applied by the um, Alcoholics Anonymous and another one by another group that was trying to help? Right. So you have the Alcoholics Anonymous, which is our largest provider, very well-established, well-respected organization who believes that as alcoholics, we are powerless over people, places, and things. And I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol, meaning that until I surrender and acknowledge my powerlessness, that my life will be unmanageable, right? It's become unmanageable because of my desire to try to control these things. And I need to surrender. In Batter's Intervention, it's all about these men believe they have power and control. So mm -hmm. they had written a paper about how the concept of powerlessness does not exist with men who batter. And somehow over that paper, the substance abuse community took huge offense to it. And I, I think they criticized the AA model on that powerlessness and said that they failed to acknowledge that. We're all very passionate about our jobs, right? So people who are in recovery, they've seen people die from this horrible disease, and they're very passionate. We have to save lives. We have to engage. And they've seen the steps and treatment change lives. And then you have the betters women's movement, same thing. We've seen women die at the hands of men who weren't held accountable when the systems failed to provide safeguards for them. So we're very, very passionate. We both see this as life and death. When we have conflicts over language or over philosophies, we double down and we feel we have to. And then what happens, you had this standoff between two very well-respected organizations They each had their own backers. And how was it resolved? So uh, I called both leaders of these big organizations. And again, remember, I'm a line worker. I'm not a big wig in this community. But uh, I have the judge's name behind me now. So I'm like, I would like to meet in neutral ground. We can just take a lunch break and we can have this discussion. Luckily, both people came. We start with the yes. What do we all agree with? We all agree that substance abuse is a deadly disease, that people can die from it, and that people need intervention, support, and love. We also agree that no women should live in fear under coercive control, and that when that's left unchecked, sometimes women die. And even if they don't die, they may live a horrible existence in this world. And that's not just either. So we're totally in agreement. So we just start off with all the things that we agree. And then we slowly work towards, can we come to some neutral interpretation of this language? In the end, they actually did our substance abuse program, which was a large residential facility, would allow one day a week for batteries intervention providers to come in and do work with men 
a men's use of force and men's use of force of control. And we would have victim services come in and work with women on trauma and how trauma impacts sobriety and how trauma impacts safety and how we, we need safety to be able to maintain sobriety. So instead of us now being at war with each other, we became partners with each other. And we're actually reaching a much larger base of people to talk about gender-based violence and its effects on the family and our community. That's a very hopeful story. So if you had a magic wand, Jim, what to change um, social services, what would you do? What are the three priority things that you would change that would really make a difference for a lot of people on all sides of the story? So first, I just think every single policy and procedure has a purpose and a meaning. And I have to think when I do this policy, how is this being interpreted by the people I say I'm trying to help? Not what's my goal, what's my objective, what I want. Those are all wonderful. But remember, they had great goals with me. Nobody set out and said, let's screw up this kid. That was never their intent, but that was the outcome. So we need to work with the people we're trying to help. Really sit down and talk with our clients about how this is going to be interpreted. That's so, so, so important. That'd be the, the number one thing. The number two thing, make sure that I very much target the one causing harm as well. Remember, everything you make her do makes it look like it's her fault and she's the one with the problem. She's been told that on a daily basis. You're fat. You're stupid. You don't know how to make decisions. You can't do anything right. And now you offer her services reinforces that. He's going to use that against her. Be aware of how it's going to be used against her and try to figure out how can we circumvent that. A lot of these men have no idea that all the things they do on that power and control wheel destroy someone's agency and destroys that relationship. Mm -hmm. They just think they're entitled to do that. And that's how people act. We don't understand how we pull our own trauma and pass it on to our children. And so when we have good fatherhood programs that look at the impact of violence on children, we could do that. So I guess so one, focus on the perpetrator, the one who's causing harm. Thank you so much, Jim. You've given us so many pointers for better policies to really uh, make a difference. And I hear the core message that you've given us for almost every area of your work is really talk to the survivors, include the survivors, co-create with the survivors and make sure that you really don't uh, do things that make the situation worse for them, even though you're thinking you're doing the best possible. So thank you so much, Jim, for sharing all of this and particular for sharing such a difficult uh, childhood memories. It's not easy to do that. And I really thank you for sharing that with us. It was an honor to be here. Thank you so much. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.